The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning. Um, today, the scripture reading is from Exodus 25, verses 10 through 22. You can follow along in a Bible underneath a chair nearby on page 42, or you can look at the screen behind me. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it, and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another, towards the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I pray uh, that this morning it would be taught accurately, that it would be taught with clarity that it would be taught with simplicity, that it would be uh, reflective of who you are, that we would see and appreciate um, the enormity of our God, uh, that we would understand the plan of God, and, uh, that we would appreciate the plan of God. Father, bless these people. Open our hearts, our ears, our minds. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a, you know, when we talk Corinthians, I dubbed it the woodshed series at a certain part of it that you just started going through, and it was, they're just beating you up every, every week after week. And uh, so I'm going to term this series in, in uh, Exodus the TMI series. And what I mean by that is that once you pick this passage up, if you're not given a way to approach it, it, it tends to be a lot of information that you think has, well, let me say this. It's easy to see or view it as being too much information that has nothing to do with what's going on with me today. So we'll see if uh, the TMI series will stick and if it will continue. So I, I've captioned this this morning's teaching, History Does Matter. And, and when I think about this, um, really in a personal level, uh, the best, best way I can illustrate this is that I was speaking with a person that was down in South Carolina and we started saying, oh, well, where, where were you from? And we started talking about where we came from. And lo and behold, 
very close proximity where we grew up. And I said, well, did you know so-and-so? And they said, no. And then they said, do you know somebody else? And I said, yeah. And that person was not a nice person. And so as we started connecting the dots, the history this guy gave me was that he was affiliated with people I never would have given the time of day to. And my conclusion is I would not give this guy the time of day either. I would never choose to meet with him ever again. That was enough. Thank you very much. I'm going about my business. And it was interesting just to, to see how knowing where somebody came from influenced what I thought and where I'll place myself in the future. Um, you guys may know Sammy. Um, a, uh, Sammy's been around here uh, um, various churches, and he was at Doxa for a little bit. So if you know Sammy, good. If you don't know Sammy, that's all right, too. You'll know enough about him by the time I'm done this morning. So I'm sitting down with Sammy one morning having breakfast, and we started talking about where we grew up and the things that were going on. And he says, well, I grew up in Myrtle Beach. And he says, and my dad had the same name as I had, Sammy. I go, that's interesting. And he goes, and he waited tables. I said, really? He goes, at a restaurant named Rossi's about 25 years ago. And I get these big saucers in my eyes. And I said, Sammy, did you also work there? I said, were you chubby with long stringy hair? And he grins at me and says, yep. I had worked with his father 25 years ago. And I actually remember waiting, uh, waiting tables when he came in and started busing. And, and it, was, it was, you know, one of those moments that I was just totally blown away. I'm like, I cannot believe that um, we had our paths had crossed that way. And it's interesting because the year that I met and worked with Sammy Sr. Um, was the year I came to Christ. So it was really an interesting perspective of seeing somebody uh, in a restaurant setting um, from an unsaved perspective and from a, sa a saved perspective. So, you know, it, these things add to the fullness of the relationships that we have when you know where somebody has come from. And so I asked this this morning, does the history of Jesus matter to us? Knowing, knowing Jesus' Father, does it make a difference to us at all with Christ residing in our heart? Does uh, the Old Testament and all the chopping up of animals in one, one way or another, and this blood and all these rituals and all these laws make a difference at all? If I have Christ dwelling within my heart, being living a life that's led, spirit-led life, um, does it matter? And I think it's easy to say no, it doesn't. Um, it's, it's my experience. I taught a Bible study for years before coming into Doxa, this church. And one of the things I noticed was we rotated Old and New Testaments. And the years of the Old Testament attendance was always off. Which tells me that the masses of the church population are much less inclined to want to study the old rather than in the new. And again, I guess the question they would have is the same one that I have is, well, does all that stuff that happened thousands of years ago, does it really matter? Is it relevant? It's what, and when you start digging into some of that material, um, what I encounter is people that have something called spiritual attention deficit disorder. Have you heard of this? Spiritual attention deficit disorder. That's where if you talk to them about God for more than five minutes and they're not being entertained, they tune you off. It just doesn't matter anymore. It's got to be completely grabbing you and holding you and shaking you, and it's got to be relevant to what's going on with me right now, or it just you glaze over. So I, I, hope, I hope that's not going to happen this morning, but I will not be surprised if it does. One of the other things I love about Docs is that we've made a choice in the DNA of this, this church plan is that we rotate with books of the Bible from the old to the new. 
Um, and it's interesting to me as, as I grow in my faith how you start to see a bigger picture. And what are the implications of those bigger pictures? Because it doesn't so much concern, you know, I'm thinking about what's up with me this morning versus what's happened in the past. But if I find that the past is more relevant to me here and now, it also teaches me something about the past is that it's relevant to the future. And that becomes a very different story for me because I'm yet to experience and encounter and go into this future. But if you're telling me that I can have a road paved that goes before me into the future based upon my understanding and knowledge of the Old Testament, I think I want the knowledge and understanding of the Old Testament. So having said that, um, I've probably, again, um, I I hope a little bit of this resonates um, because we have a lot of detail, um, and I I hope you can see this morning that if we're going to spend time here, that we can profoundly benefit from it. The people in the Old Testament realized that through, these, uh, that through these ceremonies and through these rituals and through obeying God's word, it added and gave them the fullness of life. And I'll submit to you this morning that if I said, as a result of the information I give you in the next 75 minutes, no, I mean 40, Randy, 40 minutes, in the next 40 minutes, or 45, I'm sorry, I'll probably take the 45 this morning, that you are going to have a greater experience in life. You will be a better spouse. You will experience more fruitful uh, works in your place of employment. You will have deeper and meaningful relationships that all of the stuff that you value, I'll put it on steroids, spiritual steroids, and enhance it. How many of us this morning, if I could guarantee you that would come here this morning and bring your camcorder so you'd make sure you wouldn't miss anything or turn your phone on or be prepping on the podcast midway through the week to get that extra added benefit. That was the truth with the Israelites in the Old Testament. And I'm going to submit this morning, it's the truth today, just as much for us. Psalm uh, chapter 1, 1 and 2 say this, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So what, are we, what, are, what is the focus here? He delights in the law of the Lord, and on this he meditates. And this man is considered blessed. So I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview pickup with uh, last week um, with the uh, civil laws and regulations. And what God is doing now is as his people of Israel, the Israelites have left Egypt. They're in the desert. They're marching toward the promised land. And what God starts to do is give them his law, his rule, his, his covenants, his his all the essence of God that he wants to reveal to the nation of Israel, he starts giving them. So last week we saw that the foundations of their societal system, of their moral system, would be tethered to civil laws that would govern behaviors and just the the interaction with one another. And now we're moving into, in Exodus 24, a a, uh, command to set up a um, sacrificial, for lack of better words, religious ceremonies to denote having the law of God um, to set up a system that when we fail with regard to the law of God, we will have something to rectify it. Thus, we have the temple worship and the sacrificial system. So Moses commanded return to the mountain, goes up, meets with the Lord again. This is the fourth time in chapter 24 that Moses has met with the Lord. He returns, reports to the people. And it's interesting because the people agree, they all agree in one accord to obey the Lord as commanded. Now, that, 
they, they would never be able to agree to that. You know, God says, here's the deal. I want you to keep these laws, these decrees, these commands, and everything will go great with you. And they said, we'll agree to it. And then immediately you turn around and realize, but they can't. So what follows is that system to address when they can't, how do they reestablish that relationship with God? So Moses records the covenant, offers sacrifices to the Lord. He's called back up to the mountain for another 40 days and 40 nights. Now I'm going to jump around just a hair because this gets a little choppy. We're going to pick back up in the 40 days and 40 nights in chapters 32 through 34. The, 40, the number 40 denotes a period of testing, and I would submit that the testing wasn't so much for Moses as the people he left behind, because they're going to flunk the test. That's what's going on. It's the golden calf incident. And that is a, uh, it, when we get there, you're going to go, no, they really didn't do that. Like, lie, make something else up. That sounds better than that, because this is crazy. Um, so they, they, let's just say they drop the ball, fall over the ball, the ball hits him in the head in chapters 32 and 34 through that. So setting that aside, chapters 25 through 31 are a description of the tabernacle and the priestly duties in, in regard to the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 5 verses uh, 1 through 9 opens up with the Lord directing Moses to call his people to make contributions for the building of the tabernacle or the sanctuary. Now you're going to hear the term sanctuary, tabernacle, and tent of meeting. They're all synonymous. It all talks about the same thing, so don't let that throw you. So again, the tabernacle, this system is being placed, uh, is being set up to again establish the what-ifs we drop the ball. And in addition to that, how do we honor God? How do we um, live as a nation where we acknowledge and give the regard for God that is warranted? So this system is getting set up. Really tonight, or excuse me, this morning, we're just going to be talking about how um, the, the, the articles and their significance um, so knowing this, does this sound a little familiar? God knowing that we could not keep his perfect and just laws, God provides a means by which we're able to remain in relationship with him. Is there any ringing in your ears now saying, hey, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's what he's doing then, and that's what he's done now in Christ Jesus. So look for the parallels as they go through. We pick up in Exodus chapter 25, verse 9. It says, Exactly as I've shown you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. So Moses basically has these uh, construction specs, for lack of better words, based on two things. The words that he recorded in these passages, and as well, the vision he saw in heaven of this tabernacle. So we open up with the building of the tabernacle and its furnishings. Um, the tabernacle, probably for its size, was the most pricey building in the history of humanity. Um, and, and I'll get to that. It was very small. It was uh, approximately 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high. The interior was completely overlaid with gold. There was an inner court where you would walk into the entrance, uh, and it was called the holy place. And then the most interior place was the holy of holies. Um, the structure was made so it could be transported around. It was temporary in nature. Um, the, the structure had sockets that the boards would fit into, and each of the sockets were made out of silver. And this is really pretty interesting stuff, by the way. So there were 100 of these sockets, each weighing approximately 100 pounds. Now do the math quick, 100 pounds of silver. And there were 100 of these. That's five tons of silver. 
We're going to see in the weeks coming in Exodus chapter 30 where they acquired all of the items for the building of the temple. Maybe not all of them, but some of them. In Exodus chapter 30, verse 12, it says this. When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. And everybody paid no less and no more than a particular amount of silver. So what we have here is a picture of establishing the foundations of the system to maintain our relationship with God based upon a foundation paid that's defined as a ransom. So, little significance there, maybe, maybe not. In the inner court, the Holy of Holies, there were, uh, excuse me, in, just in the inner court, the holy place, not the Holy of Holies, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, the table of bread, there were three things in there. The table of the bread of presence, or the sh- shoe bread. Um, a little average-sized coffee table, very ornate, once again, overlaid with gold. All the dishes were made of complete pure gold. Uh, the bread that was stacked, two stacks uh, of six cakes each high. And the bread was called the bread of the presence, since it remained in the presence of God's glory. The end of each week, the bread would be consumed by the priest who served it, and they would refresh it. There's a golden lampstand in there, very similar to a menorah, one center, and then three out of each side. It was made out of 75 pounds of gold. You're starting to get an appreciation for how priced this place, this place would be. 75 pounds of gold. And there's actually a, some historical documentation that goes beyond um, the actual specs in Scripture where historians have recorded the carrying of this particular item. So you, you can get a good idea of what um, it looked like. And then there was the altar of incense. That will be addressed in chapter 30, so I'm going to step aside from that because of time. So both the table with the bread and the lampstand represent the word of God. And if you kind of think this through, the word of God, which is our spiritual food, sustains and grows us spiritually. The word of God is also the light that illuminates our walk of holiness, leading us to righteousness. Um, now, if you think about this in that innermost court, well, let me, let me get ahead of myself again. The innermost court, so those are the three items sitting in there. The innermost court was the place called the Holy of Holies. There was one object in that room, and it was called the Ark of the Covenant. That's a big deal. Do we got pictures of the um, tabernacle first, or the tent of meeting? Okay, so what I did, I like this because there's actually an organization that travels around the country with a real life size uh, tabernacle, and I did this just to kind of give you an idea about the size in light of a baseball field. Not real big. Again, the tabernacle would have been 15 feet high, So you can see a little bit of the height there, but it was very small. A lot of times we think of this glorious um, temple. And there would be, but it would be in the days of Solomon. And then Herod would build another temple. So this was the structure that was the place where everybody would meet God. Really pretty small, very unassuming until you got on the inside. And then it looked real pricey. It probably looked like Donald Trump's bathroom, for lack of better words. Yeah, I had something in there that I saw a picture of his living room. I'm like, man, this is opulent stuff. I mean, he's running neck and neck with tabernacle stuff. So having said that, we've got a picture of the tabernacle. Now we can flip forward to the ark. And again, I'm going to go into some specs here. If the ark can come up. Now you've got to put, put the plug in for Indiana Jones too, right? Because there was the, was the Temple of Doom. I'm forgetting what it was with the ark. But so a lot of these, and you can tell actually this is a false depiction because you can see the wood on the um, poles that was supposed to be all overlaid with gold. But you see the two angels up top looking down with their wings spread out, all gold again. There are other pictures of the, the Ark of the Covenant that I kind of like a little more because they're much bigger angels 
with their wings hanging over because what's going to happen is that God's going to say in between the wings and the cover, that seat, the center of the seat is called the mercy seat. In between that little place is where the glory of the Lord would reside. So we'll get to that in a minute. But so why did the Israelites need this tabernacle? Well, certainly we needed some things to establish and maintain the relationship with their God. But it's interesting, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 35 tells us that these things of God in the Old Testament, in particular here, where we are, they serve as a copy and the shadow of heavenly things. So the significance here is that God's kind of giving you an elbow in the ribs saying, hey, look at this. Because this is something that's indicative of a, it it is a blurry or shadow-like picture of something much greater that I want to show you later on. So when I show it to you later on, you're immediately going to say, ah, that's it. I seen that somewhere else. So having said that thing that I see that somewhere else, they serve as a copy or a shadow of heavenly things. And and that, I think, is a big deal. Um, And hopefully I'll be able to paint, paint a picture. So the tabernacle would be the dwelling place of God on earth during this coming period. The Hebrew word for dwell in Exodus 25 verse 8 is shakan. It's S-H-A-K-A-N, which is where we get the word for Shekinah. And Shekinah, the term Shekinah glory, is the manifestation of the presence of God. Typically the sun times a thousand, maybe 10,000, something like that. But this, this radiant essence of the presence of God. And we know it was a radiant essence. And, and a, um, in our physical state, we could not even stand in the presence of that radiance. And we know that because Moses said, God, show me your face. And he says, I'll protect you behind some granite as I come by. Because other than that, you'd be destroyed being in the presence and seeing the face of God. So we have this thing, this verse, where the Hebrew word dwell is talking about this essence of glory remaining in their presence. Since the fall of man in the garden, God's presence really has been fleeting and appearing at various times. And now there's, there's a foundational transition to where God's physical presence, his Shekinah glory, will reside in a particular place continuously. So the tabernacle would be this designated place, this one and only place where this glory would reside. And again, the ark being in this most inner of chambers would be the particular location on which God's presence would um, be found. So, I mean, let me back, double check my notes here so if I can get ahead of myself. So God says, basically, with establishing this system, I'm going to give you regular consistent conditions in which you can form and meet in relationship to me. So a lot of times people will say that Christianity is kind of restrictive. It says, well, you guys believe very particular things. And the truth of that is you're absolutely correct. And this goes back to the Old Testament where God said that if you're going to approach me, we're going to do it in a particular way. There is only by one way which you can enter into the presence of God. And it would be coming into this tabernacle. It would be going through the outer chamber and going into the inner chamber. There is no other way by which you would be able to establish, I shouldn't say establish, to come into the presence of God. A copy or a shadow of heavenly things. So think about this today. Is this relevant to us? Acts 4.12 tells us, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under which heaven given among men by which man must be saved. John 4.6 tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No man comes to the Father except through me. So we simply have 
a, a picture that we took in the, in, the, in the sacrificial system that established clear parameters for how you could maintain or establish this relationship with God, and they're transferred to Christ. Now, that should be a big deal. Because then what we're seeing is there's a direct correlation with the Ark of the Covenant in particular and the persons, the essence, uh, the being, the fullness, the, the description, the character, the nature of God in the flesh in Jesus Christ is being found here in the Ark of the Covenant. So I will walk you a little further through with this and hopefully that will become very apparent. So the tabernacle would be the new dwelling place of God. And John 1, chapter 4, excuse me, in John chapter 1, verse 14, Scripture states, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the word, the Greek word for dwelt there is the same for the, for the Greek word for tabernacle. So what we're saying in, in, in John chapter 1, verse 14, is that Christ tabernacled among us. Okay, see the correlations here with these. They serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. So the, finally, the tabernacle is actually called the tent of meeting, again, being designated as a place where we would meet with God in his presence. Hebrews 7.25 tells us, Consequently, he, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So for man to draw near to God today, the meeting place is in Christ. Same thing for the, for the Jews in, in, in that, this exodus stage and age, that if they want to draw near, if they want to draw near and approach God, it would be through approaching uh, the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. So we're going to pick up verse 10, talk about the tabernacle. Uh, they will make an ark of Achaia wood. Achaia wood was a desert wood, very hardy wood, very uh, unsusceptible to decay or breakdown. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubic and a half its breadth, and the cubit and a half its height. So here's this description of the ark. Very small, actually a little under four feet by two feet um, long and wide. Um, if you look at, to the significance of other arks, and it's interesting now we're talking about an ark, a very specific term used here. Ark, does the term ark show up elsewhere in Scripture? And the answer is absolutely. We know that Moses, when he was being placed into the Nile, there's a little basket, a little pitch on it, and they put Moses in the basket and they sent it out on the Nile. And we know that, that, was, that, that, that it was this sending out of this baby in an environment where there was a decree from Pharaoh to kill all of the children two years of age or younger. So, so Moses is placed in this little basket, and the basket is referred to as an ark. We know uh, Noah will simply uh, find his salvation or, or saving um, from death being in the ark when God pours his judgment out upon the earth. So again, just look for the parallels there. Verse 11, you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall make it, you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on either side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of Achaia wood and overlay them with gold. You see, there's the Indiana Jones lie again. You, get, you always see in, in, in our modern media, there is almost universally never an accurate depiction of um, the biblical with the reality. They'll come up and try to do a close job of it, but it's not accurate. Moses 
Moses comes off the mountain. Charlton Heston, he got these. How big are the tablets he had? Those tablets would never have fit in this little ark, by the way. So, so we know those tablets more like iPad tablets that he had maybe etched in a little 10 font print. So it's not accurate. But, so don't believe the media. Hallmark is a liar. Just leave it there. I hope we don't get sued for that, Randy. But I, I'm just going to tell you, Hallmark doesn't get it right when it comes to depicting the things of God. So, and I can prove that, so we have the proof here. And you shall put on the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall be not taken from it. And you shall put the ark, the testimony that I shall give you. And so we have this wood, item made of wood, overlaid in pure gold. It had these rings on the corner so you could carry it in conjunction with the poles. Um, it would be made, obviously... Um, some really fascinating stuff. You say, well, what's the big deal with these poles? What it's telling us is that this ark, this essence of God is so holy that man can't touch it. That's what it's telling us. It says that the holiness of God is to be revered. It it is to be respected. It is to be understood that we're dealing with a power that reflects the sovereignty of the maker of the heavens and the earth. That's what we're dealing with. Um, This would be a great lesson in teaching kids. You get all the school kids out and say, don't touch it. Now, here's what happens if you touch the ark. 2 Samuel 6, uh, 7, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. King David was moving the ark, um, and an ox was stumbling, and Uzzah, one of these individuals right near the ark, saw it starting to almost go over, and he actually tried to steady it, bang, dead on the spot. No mercy. Let the thing fall. God's holy. God does not need your help to dispense his holiness his righteousness, his sovereignty, his majesty, his glory. Go monkey with it. If you think God's falling, he's going to land us. Let him go. Let him go. So, and it's funny because in this passage, not funny like, but but it's interesting because David was upset. He was like, why'd you kill my friend? And, And the problem is, is that's a bad question. Why didn't you respect the holiness of God and understand you don't put a finger on this thing? And is there a mentality that we have with the things of God in this day and age with that? And I would submit that our culture, our American Protestant culture, for lack of better words, is devoid of that sense of reverence, of that holiness, of that awe. To think that if I get brought into the presence of the majesty of God, I should shake. Yet I stay up late watching TV or surfing the internet Sunday night or Saturday night. I come into church, I'm a little drowsy, I'm tired, I'm sluggish. You run five minutes over and I'm upset. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do we have any concept that we are here coming before a holy God to worship him, to honor him, to praise him, and to give him due reference for the unbelievable privilege and provision that he has given to us through his spirit and his son? Do we get it? And I think when we start looking at these little stories throughout Scripture, you go, oh, that's a little unnerving. I don't like the thought that if you touch the ark, bang, you drop dead. And even if it's my friend and he was trying to, there's no holiness. There's no reverence. There's no awe in the majesty of this God. You ever want to read a great place? I think it's Job 38 where Job's having a hard time. And Job starts, Job doesn't curse God. But he starts pushing the envelope, and God steps out. He says, oh, where were you when I laid out the expanse of the universe? I'd be like, nowhere. Sorry. You don't want to scamper away. That's my response. 
when you experience that reverence for who God is. Now, the pitch of my voice always goes high. I know that. So having said this, this is, so you say, well, well, what happens if somebody invades the army and they're, they're going to go take the Ark of the Covenant? Don't worry. He's got it. There's a part in Scripture in 1 Samuel 4 through 7 where the Philistines waged war against the Israelites. And guess what they captured? The Ark. Whoops. That would be my response. Whoops. No, no, no. Leave the Ark. Don't touch the Ark. It's bad. As we're fleeing to the mountains, if I was one of the Jews, I would have, said, I would have written in the sand, P.S., don't touch the Ark. Have a nice day as I surrender. The Philistines wage war against them. They capture the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark is, uh, first they take the Ark into the temple of the god of Dagon. Now, if your god is named Dagon, get a new god. But, but so they put the Ark in, the, in, in this temple with the god Dagon. They found Dagon in the morning, face down next to the Ark. Now, don't say Dagon. It. That's, not, that's not funny. All right, maybe it is. All right, so they do it again. They, they, they pick Dagon up and they leave him there in the presence. And guess what happens in the morning? You come back. Not only is Dagon on the floor now, but he got no head and his arms have been chopped off. So they think maybe this is not such a good thing. So they take it back to Ashdod. And the people of Ashdod are afflicted with tumors. They sent the ark to Gath. Tumors afflict these people. And they start freaking out. The ark is taken to Elkron. And these people start suffering with tumors. And many of them die. Don't worry about it. They put the ark of the covenant uh, they yoke it up with two cattle, and they sent it out. And the ark is brought back to the Israelites. Okay? A little bit of the holiness of God. Don't worry, God. God is in control. So, verse 17, we pick up. So you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece of the mercy seat shall you make the, right, make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. So, so we have this information now again. And that's why I don't like the Indiana Temple of Doom one. Because it doesn't show the wings big enough to be overshadowing the mercy seat. I think it's inaccurate, the picture there. Um, so we've got this... I don't, I don't want to call it a special lid. That may be sacrilegious. But it's, it's this um, covering for this box. And gold denotes, obviously, if you look throughout Scripture, gold denotes the highest form of purity uh, and beauty to the average person. And, uh, you know, we're in a culture, sadly, where gold really isn't a big deal anymore. But I would submit to you that I still think it is. We're just not acknowledging it. Try this if you don't think gold is a big deal. For Christmas, get your wife or girlfriend a lead bracelet. Make sure, though, her sister gets a big hunk of metal of some other sort, and I can tell you, you'll probably get a sack of coal in return. It's a big deal, this gold. This, because if you look at gold, it's shiny, it's pretty, it's rare, um, it, it's very reflective. And when you got a lot of gold, there's something that says, this, this is really uh, something important. i got to get a... Uh, I told Randy to get me a mic that attaches to me. Randy got a special ear for this, I don't. So... So why would God tell us if gold isn't a big deal that the streets of the kingdom of God will be laid with it? Think that through, that the streets will be laid with gold. Um, some interesting stuff there just with regard to this. I think God was trying to impress us. So uh, the mercy seat is this place of uh, propitiation. Uh, propitiation means to satisfy the wrath of God. In 1 John 4.10 it says this, 
In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. So there's a correlation now between this mercy seat and this term propitiation. Hebrews 9.5 tells us, above it were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the mercy seat. The Greek word for propitiation is the same word that gets translated to the mercy seat in John. Start seeing these references again. To, to Christ being the mercy seat. He would be the one upon which um, there would be the atonementing, the atoning process, this, reconcili- uh, this reconciling process between man and God. And it centers on this mercy seat. So the mercy seat is the place where God's wrath was appeased. Over the mercy seat, the high priest sprinkled the blood of the goat on the day of atonement. That, that was the annual uh, celebration where they would gather... And, and they would conduct this ritual, which would atone for the nation as a whole. So it was saying that, that this particular thing is what set right this people before a holy God. And it was an annual ritual. It was done yearly each time. But, but, but it would have to be done annually, and it was only a temporary appeasement. And only the high priest, here, here's some significance now. The high priest of that year would be the only one who would ever go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood at that time. Nobody else ever even saw the Holy of Holies. If you went in there, um, the, 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 um, there are um, historical um, rituals that the priests were commanded these very, very, the high priest was given very, very specific rules to follow with regard to this ritual. And it came to the point that these, these priests did not follow the rules and God would strike them dead. So they baked into that ritual, they would put bells around the tassels of their robe to make sure they're still moving, a little jingling. And because you can't go get the body out of the Holy of Holies, they'd tie a rope around his ankle. So if he deviates from this ritual going in there and you hear the bells stop, you yank it maybe, you probably do something like yank it three times and say, yank back two if you're still alive. And, you know, get a little pull back. No pull. They would pull a dead man out from within the Holy of Holies. And again, it simply denotes the significance that when we approach the holiness of God, it had best be under his terms and conditions. And that there is no deviation from his terms and conditions that will be condoned. And again, if we think about the picture of Christ, if I say, well, I, I can have my salvation in Jesus and, or if, or if I've got to do some works and Jesus, we start adding in other things, how far does that get us with regard to being, uh, uh, having that relationship with Christ? And it's not Jesus and, it's Jesus, period. The two cherubim, these are creatures that attend to the Shekinah glory uh, called um, the cherubim. Uh, cherub is singular, so that's why you have the cherub in. Bible mentions angels, a seraphim, and cherubim. Let me give you a little difference here because I think there is a, a significant importance here. Angels are messengers of God, the lowest of the three. Hebrews 2, uh, 2 tells us that for since the messenger declared by angels proved reliable. Unlike Hallmark and Victoria's Secret Cattles, these angels do not have wings. No wings on these guys. Um, second, seraphim is the next rank above it, only addressed in Isaiah chapter 6. That's a fantastic passage to read, by the way. Seen as ministering to the Lord on his throne and giving him praise. They have six wings, by the way. Finally, the highest order of spiritual creatures are the cherubim. Um, and and I'm, I shouldn't, you should use that word differently, of angelic beings. Because there are other beings in God's, uh, up in, in Revelation, 
where there are beings that are outside the parameters of what these beings look like. They're, they're different. They're not the same. So with regard to angels, there's the three orders. Um, and then we have the cherubim. They are described in detail in, in the book of Ezekiel, always associated with the appearance or the glory of God, the Shekinah glory. Um, they are entrusted with this glory. The chief cherub. Anyone know who the chief cherub was? I say was because this is a trick question. It's a good, once I say was, it was Lucifer. It was Satan. And it's interesting because the angel who was the closest to the glory of God is the one who revolts and rebels. So I thought that was kind of pretty interesting. Uh, Verse 21. um, And you shall put on the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So again, on, on both ends of the ark, we have these cherubim outspread wings, and the Shekinah glory would be in a small space that would be underneath the wings and above the seat. Now, it's interesting, if you look at the specs for the Holy of Holies, there's no light in there. And it is the glory of the Lord that would be manifest in there that would give you the light. And I would suspect that they probably needed Ray-Bans times 10 going in there because it's all gold. If you look at gold uh, and then you put in a real bright light, it is magnificent is is what what, what you should draw from that. Um, It's interesting that Christ, what is Christ classified for us? Revelation 22.5 tells us they will need no no light of lamp or the sun for the Lord will be their light. Serves simply as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. Historically, this glory of God remained in the ark until the years before the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Ezekiel chapter 8 through 10 tells us about the glory of the Lord moving away from the Holy of Holies to where it would reside at the threshold of the temple, illuminating the whole courtyard. Then this glory of the Lord would move to the entrance of the east gate, and it was surrounded by cherubim. And finally, it deports It departs from the temple altogether and moves beyond to the Mount of Olives. Now, this is interesting. So the presence, the fullness, the holiness, the majesty of God is found in the Old Testament last, the Mount of Olives. Where was Jesus standing with the ascension when he went back up to heaven? Mount of Olives. Zechariah tells us when Christ returns and sets foot down on the earth, guess where he shows up? Mount of Olives. It is simply a picture of the presence. When you look at the ark and you start stripping away all the little bits and pieces, do you know what you see? You see the essence, the fullness of the person of Christ. It's simply a shadow or a picture of things to come. So God would command the placement of three things inside the ark. God would tell Moses to place the testimony. That was the Mosaic law given to him from up on the mountain. The jar of manna and the budding staff of Aaron. And all three, again, give us a picture of who Christ is. The tablets were the written law that represented the sinless Christ who would judge all men. Acts 17.31 tells us, for he has fixed a day which he will judge the world in righteousness. There is the holiness of God manifest in the law. The manna represents Jesus, the bread of life come down from heaven. John 6.35 tells us, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Fascinating. Now you say, what about the staff of Aaron's? This is, this is interesting. How, how do you pull Jesus out of this one? This is, there was an incident in number 17 where there became uprisings within the, the Israelite community. And, and Moses basically said, take your staffs, get the 12 tribes, get the leader of each tribe, write their name on the staff, put it in, 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 front, of the, um, 
in, in the, in the uh, tabernacle, and we'll check in the morning and see what's going on here. And when they checked in the morning, all the staffs remained the same except Aaron's, which had budded, blossomed, and produced almonds. And that's a big deal. You know, if you're looking at your staff, going, oh, he's got a special staff now. Trust us. Jeremiah 23.5 says, Behold, the day will come, says the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, a pitcher, a copy, a shadow. When Jesus was crucified, we read in Matthew 27, 50 to 51, and Christ cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, this, this curtain was different because this was Herod's temple. The floor to ceiling was 40 cubits, which is about 60 feet, according to the writings of Josephus, who is a fairly trusted historian. The Jewish tradition says that the veil was about four inches thick. We don't have any more information on that. Exodus teaches it was a very thick veil fashioned. In John 4, 21, Jesus told the Samaritan woman, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem I will worship the Father. Now, wait a minute. You told me as a Jew if I want to approach God that I would have to go through this temple worship system. Yet now Christ dies and the veil is torn. And Jesus' words that resonate are that, that's, that this, this, this going to the temple will no longer take place. To tear the temple from the top down in a short period of time could only be attributed to the power and hand of God. So, so when the chief priest would have went in and inspected this torn veil, he would have known that Christ was the Son of God. Now, the chief priest that year was a, was a jerk named Caiaphas. I have lots of other words in my head I cannot state about Caiaphas. He was the fa- uh, son-in-law of Annas. Caiaphas was the one who said it would be better for one man to die, saying, I can sacrifice a man to maintain my standard of living. Talk about a toxic, horrible person. And I'm going to give you a theory now. When they saw the temple court torn... Caiaphas said, sew it back together quick. The ark, in my view, was gone. The temple would burn 70 years from now. And we know God takes care of his ark. So you know the temple, the ark wouldn't have burned, trust me. And we know that actually because in Revelation, in Revelation eleven nineteen, it tells us the temple of heaven, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of the covenant was seen within his temple. So we know where the ark is, it's just when did it leave? And my, my theory is that it left upon the tearing of the veil, indicating that this thing was no longer, you could no longer conduct the sacrificial system anymore. That if you're seeking forgiveness of sin, you'll have to go somewhere else. Later on in John chapter 20, 11 through 12, Scripture tells us, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying as she wept, She bent over inside of the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. And where would the body have been laid? In the mercy seat. Just a perfect picture. Just another picture of who uh, Christ was in the fullness of God's plan. So the chief priest, the... the, uh, ark is missing. My theory here is that they would have signed it back up and they would have continued their fraud. See, it didn't matter to Caiaphas who Christ was. It wasn't going to change anything if there was no ark of the covenant and you couldn't go in and conduct the temple sacrifice for the day of atonement. It didn't matter to him. And I'm going to submit that as we see these things in awe and wonder and we acknowledge the holiness of God, there are those around us who are, it is not 
going to matter. Now, I will say something. We have a duty to give them the information. What they do with that is between them and God. It's a horrifying thing to think that people will perpetrate their own religion at the expense of serving the one true God. And their default is simply to exalt themselves, and that's, that's the way it plays out. If it took the purpose, think about that. So each year, the new high priest would come in and find no ark, and he would know this thing's a, a sham. It's a fraud. It's all a lie. Because there is but only one way to form a relationship between us and the Father. Those things we've talked about this morning only serve as a shadow, as a picture of things to come. So in closing, I want to tell you about my, my friend Sammy's dad. His dad was a great guy. I really liked him. He was always kind to me. He was a funny guy. I enjoyed being around him. When I'd get snowed in, if I needed to call on somebody to help me, um, I absolutely would flag Sammy down. He wasn't cliquish. He wasn't cagey. He was just another guy out there doing his job who gave a rip who treated other people like they mattered. So I asked this question, did knowing the things about Sammy's father affect my relationship with his son? Absolutely. And is it any different with what we see here in the Old Testament? To knowing the things of God, to see the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God, the majesty of God, should it affect our relationship? his son. Does knowing that our God, our Father, was putting into a plan of redemption a thousand years before he sent his son make a difference to us? Does knowing God's hatred of sin affect our walk with his son? Does seeing the holiness of God displayed create in us a greater reverence for his son? Does seeing that God's meticulous plan of redemption perfectly shadowed the actual life of Christ and his sacrificial death does it matter to us? Does knowing the significance of the torn veil give us greater freedom and confidence when we approach the King of Kings? If, if you're sitting here saying today, I don't know either God, I don't know the one of the Old Testament, and I certainly don't know the new, the one of the new, this King of Kings calls you today. This King of King calls you today to forgive you, to redeem you, to love you, and to live with you. And that's a big deal. That's a real big deal. And I don't care whether you can come to this King through the words of the Old Testament or for the words of the New Testament, but they both lead to the same King. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you... Um, to catch just a snapshot of who you are, of the enormity, of the majesty, of the holiness, of the goodness, of the provision. Father, we, we praise you, we thank you, we honor you. We lift up your son, we praise you, Jesus. We thank you for who you are and what you have done. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. 
we invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.